So um, I want to start today by asking you guys a question. In which of the following scenarios do you think you would be happiest a year from now? Okay, scenario one, your life stays exactly the same as it is now. Same job, you live in the same place, you have the same relationships. You know, everything stays pretty much the same as it is. Scenario two, tomorrow you have a tragic accident and you are paralyzed from the waist down. Scenario three, tomorrow you win the Mega Millions, which is currently, the jackpot is currently at $227 million. Okay, scenario one, life stays the same. Scenario two, you become paraplegic. And scenario three, you win the lottery. Now, I think most of us would assume the obvious answer is scenario three. You win the lottery. I would be the happiest if I won $227 million. And even if you want to be this, like, even if you want to do the Christian version, you know, you want to cover all your bases, well, I'm going to use the money to, like, support missionaries. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, like, adopt some kids and, like, pay off people's debts and, th- you know, I'm going to help the homeless. Like, even if you were to cover it all in that way, you know, we would think, okay, yeah, you know, that's, that's covered. I'm not doing it for greedy, selfish reasons. You know, that is what's probably going to make me the happiest if I were to have this sudden influx of cash. However, uh, scientific research has shown that regardless of which of these three things happen to you, your happiness a year from now would be roughly the same as it is right now. Uh, this is called hedonic or hedonic adaptation. It is our ability to have a base level of happiness, and over time, whatever happens, we return to that level of happiness. Our brains have this ability to put things that become normal to us into the background. And so we're only noticing new stimuli. So, of course, if you won the lottery tomorrow, you would be happy on Tuesday. I'm not saying you wouldn't be happy on Tuesday. You would be ecstatic on Tuesday. But over time, the fact that you have a lot of money would just become normal. Right? So, you know, back in the, in, the, in the 70s, these two psychologists, they studied this, and actually they studied these specific situations, people who had won the lottery and people who had become paraplegic. And they discovered that over time, their happiness, although obviously if you become paraplegic at the moment, it drops down, and if you win the lottery, it goes up. Over time, roughly a year later, their happiness returned to normal. And in fact, people who had won the lottery, their happiness level, their average happiness level was lower than it was the year prior. So these two psychologists, Brickman and Campbell, they called it hedonic adaptation. And later in the 90s, it was restudied, and this guy called it the hedonic treadmill. Because it is this idea that... You're doing a lot of stuff to change your happiness, but it seems like it's not going anywhere. Now, in fact, way before any of these psychologists, this man, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you might remember that name from some history class in, like, junior high or something. Uh, He said this. He said, since these conveniences, by becoming habitual and almost entirely ceased 
uh, by becoming habitual, had almost entirely ceased to be enjoyable, and at the same time degenerated into true needs, it became much more cruel to be deprived of them than to possess them was sweet, and men were unhappy to lose them without being happy to possess them. Isn't that an incredible statement? That things can happen such that when, when these things, these new things that we really want become a regular part of our lives, what ends up happening is we are unhappy to not have them, but we cease to be happy to have them. Like it is, it is more bad, it feels more bad to not have it than it feels good to have it. We've all experienced that, right? You get a new phone, you get a new car, you get a new laptop, you get a new something. Initially, it feels better, but no matter what you do to make your life better, the initial joy that you felt as a result of that betterness, it doesn't stick. It wears off. You go back to where you were before. So I have a question for you, church. Do you ever feel like you're running hard, but you're not going anywhere? I will tell you, okay, I thought about this a lot on my sabbatical. I am burdened by watching people repeatedly get on this treadmill. Running through the day, only at the end of it to be nowhere. To be the same place, to be in the same place where they started. To make money for no reason. To want free time, but with no purpose. I am weary of watching people in a losing cycle of discontentment. See, following Christ is not about settling for anything. It's about It's about trading up to a greater and more powerful and more fulfilling life that at the end of it, we can look back and not only be happy about it, but be proud. Be proud of it as we walk toward our maker. And the more we give up, the more we gain. That's my, that's, as we walk through this series, that's, that's my prayer. That's my hope that God will open up the eyes of our hearts to that truth. And so today we're going to be looking specifically at that question, how do we trade what I call a treadmill lifestyle for a real life? You know, a life that's moving forward with purpose. And in fact, it'll take a few weeks even to cover this, but we're going to start today in Hebrews 12. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible, you can look up at the screen. Uh, if you do have your Bible, I encourage that you take it out and look at it. But this is uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses um, 1 and 2. We're just going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. This is God's Word. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, three things 
I want to say. How do you live this real life instead of a treadmill lifestyle? Okay. First thing, point number one, step off the treadmill. Step off the treadmill. Now, he says here in this passage, lay aside every weight and sin. Now, he says we have to lay aside every sin. Okay, now, sin is this, this rebellion against God, right? It is this decision that I get to decide not just what is right and wrong, but what's good and bad for me, and then acting upon it. Right, living that way—that is kind of a, a lifestyle of sin, you know. And uh, Colossians three, kind of, uh, you know, it talks about this. I'm not going to go d- deep into this passage, but I do want to share it a little bit. Uh, Colossians three says, "If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died." And your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he says, if you've been raised with Christ, if you know Jesus, right? And if you've been raised with Christ, that means you've died with Christ. You've been buried with Christ. And that's what baptism is a, a, a symbol of, right? That you've died to yourself, your old self, and then you've been raised out of the ground. You've been resurrected with Jesus because that's what happened to Jesus. He died. He was buried. He resurrected. If we follow him, that's what he offers us. He says, hey. You can die to your old self, you can be buried, and you can be resurrected anew. I'm going to create new life in you. I'm going to give you a new heart and change you completely. If you've been raised with Christ, then set your minds not on the things that are on earth, not what everybody in the world thinks, not the philosophies of the world, but set your mind on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, in heaven, where God reigns, where God's will is done. Now, how does that manifest itself? He goes on, right? He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? And then he names stuff. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. If you have been raised with Christ and you're not seeking the things that are above and you're not putting to death what is earthly in you, then your heart and your life are not on the same page. Because your heart is, is in one place because Jesus has purchased a new heart for you by himself, taking on all your sin, dying on the cross, being buried, being resurrected. He has given you, if you say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you now. I'll put my faith in you for salvation, not in money, not in people, not in the perception of, you know, not in any of these things. Jesus, you're the only one that can save me. You're the only one that can fix me. I need you, Jesus. And if you say that to Jesus and you believe it in your heart, but your life doesn't change. You don't say, I'm also going to put to death everything that's dead. I'm going to let it die. Then your heart and your life are not aligned. And let me tell you, that will not be a happy experience. Now, if you're a Christian, and even if you're not a Christian and you're here, you're probably here because 
you think something about God, that it's somehow good for you, that he's somehow good for you, then you are probably familiar with the idea that you don't want to sin. Right? None, none of us are ever going to be perfect. Like We're not going to not sin at all in this life. You know, we will always struggle with sin. So intellectually, you might be able to grasp the idea of, well, I know sin's bad, and, and you can agree with everything I'm saying. Probably that you know, even, if, even if there are parts of your life that are tough, even if there are parts in your life where you struggle with sin, and I would say this, if there's habitual sin in your life, if there are things that you struggle with, just immediately, as soon as you can, confess it. Talk about it. Say, hey, you know what? I need accountability. Don't wait for someone to come to you. You go to somebody and you say, hey, this is what's in my life. I struggle with this, and I need help. I need your help. Please help me. Pray for me. Keep me accountable. I highly encourage you to do that because that's the only way to get sin out of your life. You can't beat sin out of your life. You can't train yourself to get sin out of your life. You can only confess it to death. That's the only way. Now, I think at least probably intellectually, we can all agree on that. You know, sin's bad, and we want to get it out of our lives. But what he says here is, let us... Also, and he's, he's talking about these cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11. He talks about all the, the men and women of faith in the past, right? How they followed God, you know, the Abrahams and the Moseses, right? And the Jacobs and the Isaacs and all these people, right? And he's talking about the people of faith, and he's saying, We're, we, we got this, this lineage, this pedigree of people before us. He says, let's do the same. Let's, us, let's lay aside, but he says, let's lay aside every weight and sin, So he says, let's lay aside every sin, but he also says there's a distinction between what is just a weight and what is sin. So there's sin, certainly, which we must cut out of our lives, which many of us probably, at least intellectually, if not behaviorally, agree with. But then there's also these weights. There are things, there are non-sin weights that keep us from running the race that is set before us. There's a type of weight that prevents you from running that might not be sin. Are you, do you realize that? I read this story, this news story. A woman named Nikki Walsh, age 24, and her boyfriend, Tanner Broadwell. That's a cool name, Broadwell. (laughs) Tanner Broadwell, age 26, they decided that they were tired of working. Okay, they said, how can we live our lives when we're working most of the day and you have to pay for so much just to live? And, um, you know, these are just kind of quotes from them. Most of the work you do goes to your home. There has to be another option. There has to be another option. They were tired of this like nine to five grind every day, right? So the the Colorado couple, they uh, sold all their furniture and their SUV, and they purchased a 49-year-old boat in Alabama to live on and to eventually sail the world. So this is their dream, right? They're like, we're going to, they just sold all their, this is totally millennial, right? They just sold all their stuff, and they're like, we're going to live on a boat, and then we're going to sail around the world. It's just the two of them, they're unmarried, you know, they're a couple, they got a dog together. So they live on this boat for some months. They stock up stuff, right? And then nearly, so, and then they finally, it's time, right? So they start sailing around the world. And, and two days, two days into their trip, the couple 
uh, they went to this channel of water called John's Pass, and they sank their boat. They said, we thought the channel was where we were going, but it wasn't. They said, we had GPS and maps. I don't know what happened. And they said, when the water started coming, waves started coming, we freaked out. You're on a boat in the water. Why are you freaking out when the waves are? But the waves started coming. They freaked out. And guess what they did? They jumped out of the boat. And they grabbed their dog, thankfully. They grabbed their dog. They jumped out of the boat. Uh, They said they got all the important documents and things that they had. And then here's another quote. I also grabbed Remy's food and his toys. The boat's sinking. And, and this girl, she grabs the, the dog's toys. And she says, because he doesn't deserve to go without his favorite toys. This is the millennial answer to the treadmill. Right? It is, oh, I don't want to live on this treadmill. I don't want to do this nine to five and just live this life doing the same thing every day. Because you all feel it, right? We all feel it. But let me tell you something. This isn't the answer. This is the world's answer. Here is doing something big and different, but essentially for a stupid reason. And I'm not, I'm not trying to like, these people are all safe and they're fine. And actually, they raised $10,000 on a GoFundMe, which kind of upset me. Because they put their story out there and other millennials were like, go do it. Here's the secret of the hedonic treadmill that the world will not tell you. To be happy isn't a good why, and it won't make you happy. Living for the purpose of happiness, of your happiness, a why, because we all need a why. The what you do isn't nearly as important as the why you do it. What is your why? And if your why is to be happy, you'll never be happy. You will live forever on the treadmill. And you will ask yourself every day, why am I not going anywhere? How come I end up in the same place at the end of the day that I started the day? That's what Satan wants. He wants you to be really busy and to run really hard, but to end up nowhere. Hedonic adaptation is important. It's not all bad, right? I mean, it's just a condition. It's kind of just part of us. And it's not bad because it's actually part of what makes us very resilient. Because even when really bad things happen, we're able to recover. We're able to come back and able to move on, essentially. But here's the thing. It can be good or bad. It can be good in that sense to make you resilient, or it can be really bad to make everything feel disappointing, like a never-ending disappointment. So here's what we must know about it. It's good to know this. Okay, It's good to know this. It sounds like I'm saying bad things, but I'm not. I'm saying things you need to hear and you need to know, because it's good to know this. No job will ever permanently affect your happiness. It just won't. No amount of money is ever going to do that. You know, it sounds pessimistic, but it's not. And this is why, because no job you've ever had has done that for you. Because no amount of money you've ever had has done that for you. Everyone in this room, I'm pretty sure, makes the most money they've ever made in their lives right now. 
right? Because, you know, generally your pay over the course of your life goes up. Your income goes up. So you're making the most money probably that you've ever made in your life right now. Are you, are you happy? Is it enough? No relationship. It doesn't matter if it's your parents. It doesn't matter if it's your spouse. It doesn't matter if it's your best friend. It doesn't matter if it's the person sitting next to you. It's not going to permanently, in and of itself, fix your happiness. It's good to know that so that you can stop pursuing that as the means to that happiness. So that's point one. Stop that. Get off that treadmill. You know, just say, the only way to win this game that the world has created the, world's, the rules for is to just not play it. And say, I'm going to play a different game. A game that is not just better equals happier. Here's point two. Run the race. Run the race. Point one, get off the treadmill. Point two, run the race with endurance in parentheses. So the, the, the author of Hebrews brings up this race metaphor, right? He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. Each of us has a race that has been set before us by God. You have a race. Now, for many of us, and I'm not saying it's totally binary, like if you've been on the treadmill, then you've not, you haven't started the race, you know. It's, it's kind of, and, and you see in the passage, it's a sin which clings so closely. See, there are these, it's this thing that keeps drawing you back, wants to get you off the path and back onto the treadmill. But the encouragement of the author is, no, run the race. Run the race. The goal of the race has to be faithfulness to finish the race. That's what Paul says at the end. Now, he says, run the race as if you're trying to win the race. But at the end of his life, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't say, I won the race. He says, I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Our goal should be faithfulness in this race. So over my sabbatical, I was like visiting churches. I run into all these people. Everybody I run into, they're like, what are you doing here? Aren't you a pastor? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, just, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on sabbatical. You know, and so I visited all these churches, and I was uh, I talking to this one guy who I haven't seen for a long time. You know, and, and he's kind of, uh, he's older now. You know, he's, he's a bit older than me, and I knew him from a long time ago, like college or something. So I haven't seen him for, for years, like decades almost. And, um, you know, I was like, what are you doing? How are you? He was He happened to be looking for a new church, and... You know, he has a family and kids now. And I asked him, I said, you know, how long has it been since you've done kind of like served in the church, been in ministry? Because I know it's hard. Once you have kids, it becomes very difficult. Your schedule gets all out of whack and things like that. And his kids were kind of older. But he said since he had children and his kids were in, uh, I think, like uh, uh, elementary school, basically, elementary aged, he said he hadn't done any service in the church. So it had been, you know five to between five and ten years. You know, and I said, you know, if you were to serve, like, what would you want to do? What's your, what's your, you know, what would your ministry be? And he actually said, I'd, w- I'd love to do Sunday school, which I thought was really interesting. I was like, why? He's like, I like kids, you know. 
and I'd love to just kind of be in this ministry. And he actually told me this story about Jimmy Carter. You guys know, uh, you guys know who Jimmy Carter is? 39th president of the United States, right? He was president. You know, he's Iran hostage crisis and stuff, got troops out of Korea. You know, he did the, he, he, he was a, he was like an ambassador after his, you know, after his presidency. He founded the Carter Center. A, uh, it's a nonprofit organization. They help with kind of advancing human rights, you know, around the world. It's, it's a big thing. Now, Jimmy Carter's 94 now. And do you know what Jimmy Carter does on Sundays? Former President Jimmy Carter. He, uh, he teaches Sunday school at a small church in Plains, Georgia. It's like a couple hundred people. And he's been doing that for like decades. This is a former president. It's crazy because, you know, and now it's getting, it's getting crazy now. It's becoming a spectacle now because he's old and, you know, he's, he's probably going to pass away soon. And so now there are like lines of people that come to see him. But for many years, he was just doing that and nobody really, it wasn't a big deal. He just did that for years. See, for, for Jimmy Carter, running the race with endurance, he's a Christian, obviously, and he's, he's, that was a very a large part even of his political life. But for him, running the race with endurance meant that for part of his life, for four years, he was president of the United States. And for the other 90 years, I mean, he was governor for a while. He's done other things, right? But for most of his life, he's just been a a faithful Christian. That's his race. Are you running the race that is set before you? Think about it. Here's point three. Fix your eyes. Fix your eyes. It says, let us run with endurance the race. Looking to Jesus. Just looking to Jesus. Right, the NIV has it, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the one on whom our faith is founded. He is the unshakable ground on which we rest. The Bible says, for the, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It was the joy of Jesus to endure the cross. Now, not to suffer on the cross. And it says, he says, despising the shame of the cross. Yet it was the joy of Jesus to endure the cross. That was his choice. It was not, he wasn't forced into it. It wasn't the people that made him go to the cross. It wasn't the Romans that made him go to the cross. It wasn't the Jews that made him go to the cross. Jesus went to the cross because that was his choice. It was his joy. So there's this thing that happens when, when uh, pilots, especially uh, pilots of small planes. So this would typically be like in the Midwest, you know, like farmer planes, you know. I, what is that? That's not a word. Whatever, you know, the planes that farmers fly, crop dusters, you know, crop dusters, that's what I'm thinking of. You know, those kind of like small planes, right? When they're flying in the Midwest, oftentimes they'll have to make these like, because things happen with those kind of planes, and they'll often land, they can land kind of anywhere, you know, they, it doesn't have to be like this huge runway, like a big 747. So 
uh, they'll have these emergency landings. And what will often happen is that they will, when they're flying, they're always kind of seeing these clearings. You know, it's not like here, right? It, there's a lot of open land. So they'll see these clearings, and they'll kind of make note of it just in case they have to make an emergency landing. And oftentimes what will happen is, this, is, this has been studied and noted too, when they have to make an emergency landing, they'll, they'll be like a big field because they remember. So they'll be like, oh, yeah, there's a field over there. I can go land in that big field. And as they're going towards that big field, they'll see something like a tree or like a telephone pole, you know, just something. And they'll get closer and closer to the field, and then they'll hit the telephone pole. <laughs> like this happens a lot, weirdly. Right now, th this is called negative target fixation. So what happens is when you're doing something, sometimes instead of thinking about what you're doing, you're thinking about what you don't want to do. Right? And it's crazy because you can actually look this up. Like you can look it up on YouTube or something, right? I saw this other one where there's a, there's a motorcycle race, right? And all these motorcycles are racing and this guy falls off his motorcycle and he, you know, gets off the track. And then, you know, all the, all the other motorcycles are going around the fallen motorcycle, and this one motorcycle just goes straight towards the motor. It's like coming from far away, but for some reason, he just goes straight towards the downed motorcycle, and then he flips over it. He crashes into it, and then he flips over it, and the announcers, they say, they say, oh, target fixation. Because that's what can happen. Sometimes... We are so fixated on what we do not want that what you don't want, you cause to happen. Do you ever do that? Do you ever think like, oh, like, I, this can't happen again. I don't want this to happen again. And then all you're trying to do is avoid that thing over and over. And here's the thing. You can't, there, there's, a, there's a kind of adage in sports, right? You can't win by trying not to lose. You know, this is actually what happens a lot. If you see like a crazy comeback in sports, like a basketball comeback or a football comeback, what usually happens is one of the teams starts playing really conservative because they're trying not to lose. They, they stop thinking about winning. They try not to lose. And then the other team is thinking about winning. And so the, even though the other team is down, they start charging forward. They're, they're doing well. Defense can't stop them. And then all of a sudden, they win. See, you can't win by trying not to do something, by trying not to offend people. You can't win by trying not to let someone down. You can't win by comparing your life to any other person's and how your life does or doesn't measure up. That's not a way to win. And it's not because of how your performance is affected. It's because definitionally, you don't know what a win is. Do you ever like, how many people here have ever had a new car? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you've ever had a new car. Ever had a new car. Okay. So you know, like, when you buy a new car, what happens, right? You do a bunch of research. You check out this car, right? You're looking for it online. You look at the MSRP. You look at what, you know, the, the fair rate is. You know, you go to the dealer or whatever. You haggle it down. You feel like you get a good deal. As soon as you step into that car, and sometimes when you're doing research, what happens? You go out on the road, and what happens? Everybody's driving your car. Right? All of a sudden, 
Like, you never saw a single whatever your car is on the road before, right? Nobody ever drove that car. Nobody ever drove an Accord before. You know, you never saw that. And then all of a sudden, you buy an Accord, and everyone's driving an Accord. What happened? Did at the same time you bought your car, millions of other people suddenly also bought that car? Is that what happened? Or is it that because you know what you're looking for, you can see it now? If all you know about your life is things you don't want, you know what you don't want in life. That's all you will be able to see. If you know what you don't want when it comes to words like job or family or relationship or community or church, if you know what you don't want but you don't know what you want, let me tell you something. You can only see one of those things, the one that you know. So, of course, you can't win. If you want to win, you got to go for the win. Make no mistake. God wants you to win. Do you hear that? Do you believe that? God wants you to win. This, this isn't a book of avoidance. This isn't a manual for, you know, how to keep away from loss it's not, it's not about the safest and most pain-free way to live life. That's, that's not what it's about. This is, this is, gonna, this is gonna, gonna teach you how to do any of those, how to avoid, you know, discomfort. No, in fact, oftentimes it's gonna encourage you to confront those things. This, this book, this word, is a history of God himself who repeatedly steps into our ugly messes and our pain and our hurt and our losses and takes them upon himself so that we can win. We don't serve, you know, Jesus isn't dead. He's not a slave. He's not a loser. No, he's the ultimate winner. He wasn't conquered by sin. He hasn't lost. He's the Lord. In the the book, you know, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the number two habit is this. Start with the end in mind. Start with the end in mind. Let me ask you something. Do you know what your end is? Like, at the end of your life, and I want you, if you're like, for you know, if you're married or something, your boyfriend or girlfriend, I want you to ask them this, okay, after service. Okay, or talk to your life group. Talk to your friends. I want you to ask them this. At the end of your life, what do you want your life to have been about? At the end of your life. Like when it's all said and done, what do you want your life to have been about? You know what? Even That, that might even be too far. Okay, we're too young for that. Let's say you transition out of your job right now. Okay. At the end of your term at your current job, what do you want this job to have been about? If you moved, you went to a different work, you went to a different job, what do you want it to have been about? What do you want people to remember about you? Because that is, that is what you should think about every day when you go into your job. If you move houses to a different neighborhood, what do you want the people in your neighborhood to remember about you? Because that's what you should think about 
every day when you're in your neighborhood. If you switch coffee shops, right, you don't go to stereoscope anymore, right? Like, if that's what happens, I'm not just talking to Randy. I'm talking, you know, I know like guys. What, what do you want? What do you want that time to have been about? Now, I'll close with this, okay? It's going to sound cliche at first, but I want you to really think about it. Okay, Imagine for a moment that Jesus' opinion of you was the only one you cared about. Okay, now think about it. I know, it's like, oh, this is such a Christian-y thing to say, right? It's like, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. Yeah, that's how all Christians should live. No, think, think about it for real, okay? Think about it, really. In fact, I highly encourage you to do this. Try this for one day. For one day, right? Let all your decisions, everything that comes out of your mouth, everything you eat, where you go, what, you know, who you, who you spend time with, for one day, try it for one day. I, I, it will be difficult. Think to yourself, today, I will only think about, I will only try to please Jesus. So I don't care what this person sitting next to me thinks of me. I don't care what my coworker thinks of me. I don't care what my boss thinks of me. I don't care what my spouse thinks of me. I don't care what my mom thinks of me. I don't care what my in-laws think of me. I don't care what this, you know, any person anywhere. I'm not going to even consider what their opinion of me will be. I'm only going to think about Jesus. The same Jesus who crossed the gap between divinity and humanity for you. That same Jesus. So he could walk in your shoes, understand what you go through, so that he could know hunger and thirst. He could be loved and hated by people face to face. He could be befriended and betrayed. The same Jesus who because of our ignorance and in a, you know, rebellion, our intention died. The same Jesus who rose again from the dead. The same Jesus who says to you, you are, you are valuable. You are worthy. You are beautiful. You're my child. That Jesus, imagine that his opinion of you was the one you believed in. That's the one you took to heart. That's the one you operated under. Imagine That him saying to you, well done, my son, well done, my daughter, good and faithful one, come share in my happiness. That's the only thing you thought about. Imagine what kind of ridiculous freedom it would be to only have to ever consider one person's perception of you. That's it. Just this one person, the one person who already knows everything about you and loves you anyway. I imagine that all of our lives would look dramatically different if we did that. And I also imagine that we'd be a lot happier. Running hard, dropping weight, fixed on the prize. That's the freedom that Christ has for you And me, uh, let's step into that. Let's pray together. I want to actually just kind of offer us a little bit of time to just reflect. If you want to spend this time in worship, I encourage you to do so. If you want to spend some time praying, or if you just want to spend some time thinking about that question at the end of your life, What do you want your life 
to have been about. You know, and as the worship team kind of plays over us, I encourage you to spend some time talking to God about that. 